welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and today I'm especially excited to welcome my first female guest, Sarah Pond, co-founder of Surfset Fitness, an indoor workout that simulates surfing to tone muscles, improve balance, and burn fat. Not only did Sarah receive angel funding from Mark Cuban after appearing on Shark Tank, but Surfset classes are now available in hundreds of locations worldwide. It was great to learn more about Sarah's story and what started her on this inspiring journey. And with that, let's dive into the interview. being on my show. I'm particularly excited to have you since you're my first female entrepreneur. Um, So thanks for increasing my diversity quota. Oh, that's great. I'm happy to. Um, So can you give us a little bit about your background and tell us about Surfset? Sure. Yeah. So um, I started Surfset uh, more than five years ago. Um, And prior to that, I was essentially just out of college when I started it. Um, I'd always had an interest in fitness and kind of took part-time jobs working at gyms through college. Um, and I, while I was looking for a job, I, I studied journalism. So I um, the, the jobs were kind of few and far between. It was mostly internships that were unpaid. So I figured I might as well become a personal trainer uh, while I'm looking for a paid job. And um, I ended up going to a training school in Boston and while I was there, I really like started to become more interested in group fitness and trying to figure out like new modalities. And I was really interested in core training. And I'd always had an interest in surfing, wakeboarding, wake surfing, extreme sports. And the idea kind of just came together. I met um, Mike, who is my business partner, and his friend Bill, our, our third partner at the gym. And they were working on this. They were essentially working out on a surfboard. Um, with a BOSU ball and they were trying to like simulate surfing because they were going on a surfing trip and it hit me I was like wow we could really turn this into something and then we started to talk about it and create the programming and they they built the initial prototypes um, in my mom's garage and it it took off from there. So what exactly is Surfset for people that wouldn't know? Sure. So um, the best way for me to describe it in terms of like the business model and uh, the way that we execute it is similar to spinning. Um, So instead of having 10 to 20 spin bikes in a room and having an instructor lead a class, we have 10 to 20 of our surfboard products. Essentially, it it mimics the instability of a surfboard on water. So it's three inflatable cushions um, with a plastic board on top of it and then a foam yoga mat on top of that. Um, And the whole thing is body weight activated. It has multiple settings to make it either more um, mobile or less mobile. Um, and you essentially, we created programming that takes you through like squats, push-ups, sit-ups. We do yoga. Um, we have four different styles of class. So one is like really high intensity. One is more focused on strength training. Uh, one is more balanced and yoga oriented. And then the last one is a blend of all three. And mm-hmm. we offer them now at 300, more than 350 locations in 32 countries. That's amazing. I think what's so interesting to me about your story in particular is that, you know, you see fitness things like SoulCycle or core power, but they're not creating a new type of fitness. And so I'm really curious, you know, you guys had this idea, but you had, I'm assuming really no background in, in trying to assemble this prototype. So was that daunting at all to make a physical product besides on top of having this idea? 
Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that was absolutely the hardest part. It still is the hardest part. Um, we, we kind of had the marketing and the branding and like the business model all figured out and how we were going to execute and scale the training side of things and um, the trainer manuals and all of that was kind of like what we were really solid on. And then it was manufacturing is like a whole new world, um, especially a product the size of ours. It's six feet by two feet and it sits like a foot off the ground. It has multiple plastic parts um, and then some rubber and some um, sewing fabricated parts. So it's really complex for being what looks like a pretty simple product. There's no electrical element, but it's still the manufacturing side was like incredibly daunting. Um, it was so hard to get it to a place where it wasn't breaking, where we weren't replacing multiple parts. The shipping side of that was was obviously a challenge. Um, we wanted to manufacture it in the U.S. and finding a factory that was willing to work with a company our size. We were we were nothing back then. We had um, initially built the, all the prototypes ourselves. One of my partners had a friend who was a welder and was able to make it out of metal. And then we bought the surfboards on Amazon and drilled them into this metal frame. Um, so it was like really piecemeal. And the concept took off at that point. And then it was basically trying to keep up with demand and figure out pricing and figure out like lead times and um, how to deal with warranty issues. And I mean, that has been absolutely the hardest part of the whole business. And so you said your background's in journalism. So how did you, you know, how did you and your team figure all that out? It seems like such, you know, it would be, I would say, rather daunting to most people. And a lot, I would expect a lot of people to quit given the amount of just sheer work you have to put into it rather than say something like a software product where there's maybe clearer steps on what to do. Right. And that's, I think like the reason why um, I think the three of us together really complemented each other with our skills. Um, when I was in journalism school, I, I really took an interest in like the digital side. So, you know, I had my own blog and I built my own website and I was really interested in graphics and um, Photoshop and doing all of that and then like writing copy, which is essential to when you're kind of launching a brand is to figure out how you promote it and how you like develop a mission statement and all of that. So I really focused there. And then my two partners, they're, they're both like very, um, Mike is very mechanical. I always tell him he should have been an engineer. Um, he basically put the whole thing together and then we had to go to an engineer just to put it into a CAD. So like the computer drawing, but mm -hmm. it was all his design. He, he built it by hand. So that I was really like, we were fortunate to have his skills. Um, and then my third partner, Bill was just really good on the operations side and essentially just not giving up. I think it's, we were all three of us, like really scrappy. We were like, we'll sleep on the floor. We'll, we'll go anywhere. One of the first, um, this was a month after we launched the company we got, we were in New York city and we got a, an email through the website from uh, the producer, one of the producers of good morning America. And we were like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. Like we don't even have manufacturing at all. We, at this point we only had 11 prototypes that we spent all the cash we could put together on building these. And we were in New York just offering classes, trying to test the market. And we were like, we're really going to go on national TV right now and just put this out there. And it was the day after Christmas that our episode aired. So I had to take these, they wanted four. So I took these four, 85 plus pound contraptions that were made out of metal and all this stuff. And we had to put them in, in these huge, they were actually Christmas tree bags. And <laughs> I had the only, had, 
only had enough money for one plane ticket and the show wasn't going to cover our plane tickets. So I decided I would go. So I'm like carting these things one by one from the car at um, JFK into the terminal. Then they're telling me, oh, you can't bring these. They're too heavy and you have to pay all this money. So I'm like fighting with a guy at, uh, on the, at the airline and like sleeping on the floor. So, like, I think that that's the reason we succeeded is because we were all so willing to do that. And, you know, we maybe didn't plan enough launching the concept we were thinking you know we can't go get investment right now we we don't really we haven't proved that there's a market for this we don't even know how we're going to execute but we have a cool idea and we just want to see if people like it um and so when we saw that people liked it that really like people really liked it there was so much passion and excitement that it just drove us to continue and i think that's kind of like people entrepreneurs always ask me i have this idea but like i don't want somebody to steal it and i don't know what to do and my advice is always like put it out into the world because um it's the only way that you can get momentum and that you you get that drive and that energy to keep going because the customers who love your product or love your your idea are the people that like you know allow you to keep the passion and and keep driving and keep going forward despite all the obstacles right those early adopters are critical and and also how do you know otherwise if you're designing something that anyone wants? It could be cool to you, but you have no exactly. idea if anyone else would use it. Um, and it's funny. Exactly. I remember seeing Surfset in San Francisco a few years ago at my gym, and I didn't even know it was your company at the time. Um, so <laughs> putting so that funny. together was kind of funny. And so I think I realized, you know, that this was your company when our mutual friend Becca told me that you were on Shark Tank. So I'd love to know, like, why did you guys decide to go on Shark Tank versus a traditional venture capital path? Like, what were your pros and cons? Did you even think about that? Did you think about bootstrapping? Yeah, so we had, um, we we bootstrapped through, like, essentially, um, Mike, my partner and I, we quit our jobs. I, I was just personal training, and he was working in, in finance. And we went and worked as bartenders to get enough cash to build the initial prototype. Um, and once we had that money, then we also had a, like, he had great credit. So I think we ran up $30,000 on credit cards that were due to um, hit 24% interest. And they were actually due to hit that. I think we had like at that point, almost $40,000 in debt. And that's the day that we got our investment from Mark Cuban. So like, it's just timing. But it was, it was really like, there was so much interest in New York, but we were still so young and so new that we had a lot of angel investors and people that were saying, well, this is a cool concept and, you know, I'm really interested, but I kind of want to see it grow further. I want to see where it goes. And we couldn't really afford to do that because we were making money running the classes, but not enough to manufacture. When we, when you think about purchasing, you know, $150,000 plastic mold, that's the size we needed it to be. Um, and then the first round of manufacturing at that point, we didn't even have the, the computer drawing from an engineer, which was going to cost us like close to $50,000. Um, to, to finalize that process. So while we were making cash, just running the classes, the vision that we really had was manufacturing the product and scaling it beyond just the studio in New York. Um, and so for that, we really needed some some real cash. Um, and so we talked with a lot of angel investors. No one was really quick to pull the trigger. And that's when Shark Tank kind of came into my head because I was thinking, you know, they they do these deals and essentially like then you have all the publicity that goes with it. Um, and I think that that's a part of the investors play, like, um, the sharks is they know these companies that they're investing in are going to be in front of seven or 8 million people. Um, so it's like, it's kind of a no brainer if they think the concept is good, you know, they inject some cash into it and they know that it's going to have this huge publicity hit. 
Um, and so I thought if we did something like that, we'd have a much better chance of getting an investor. Um, and we didn't know. I mean, it's such a crazy idea. It's like surfing inside. You know, we've had, a, of course, there's always haters along the way that think it's ridiculous. Um, but we really pushed forward because a lot of people loved it and really enjoyed it. And so when we went on Shark Tank, I was just sitting there like two seconds before filming. And I'm like, they're either going to laugh us off this stage and like it's over <laughs> or, or we're going to get a great investment and we're going to build a cool company. So it was like it was a really fine line at that point. And do you ever worry? I feel like, you know, especially in fitness, that people would tell you, well, you're just the latest fitness craze. You know, one day it's cycling, one day it's that. But you've managed to create this sustainable business. So what do you think the key driver behind that is to making it last and not just be a fad? That's a great question. And that's something that we actually went into it with eyes wide open thinking, you know, fitness is trend driven. This is potentially going to be a fad. It might die off pretty quickly. Um, and what sustained us, I think, is developing. So I don't think of us necessarily as, I mean, we are a fitness company for sure. And we do fitness programming and we build fitness products. But what we really do is help small boutique gyms and studios attract new clients and come up with essentially with a cool new method that they can offer to their clients. Um, so we focus so much on that, on building relationships with these small studios, um, on providing them with not just a fitness product and some training, but additionally like marketing um, support and PR support. And I think that that's really been a driver of the business. And we essentially, you know, we had the option after Shark Tank to, to have this be an infomercial and a real retail product, which I think is absolutely the trend. You know, you, pour all this money into um, creating an infomercial, getting it on TV, and then you know essentially what your return is going to be, but I, there's no future from there unless you just, just start creating new products. And um, So we decided against that and said, you know, we're not going to go retail. We're not going to do an infomercial. We're going to build a scalable virtual training that includes marketing support and PR support and business support for all these small studios because we saw a tremendous growth in these little boutique gyms everywhere that needed to compete and differentiate themselves. And so when we went that route, I think we just built a pipeline of just tons of new customers. And every year there's new, I mean, it's, it's the thing now, all the big box gyms are kind of dinosaurs and the, these new owner operated studios that do yoga and Pilates and spinning, they are perfect for surf sets. So that's kind of where, where our business lies now, most of it. So finding that right customer base. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears a bit and go back to kind of your earlier years to see um, any themes that might have been present. So, you know, what was it like growing up? What did your parents do for a living? Did you have any leadership roles, things like that? Yeah. And this is something that I actually like have spent a lot of time reflecting on because I like, I, I look at it now and I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. Um, I don't know like where it came from because both my parents are surgeons um, you know, my dad is a Harvard educated surgeon. He was cardiovascular thoracic. My mom is a general surgeon. Um, they both knew they wanted to be doctors like really young and that's what they did. But they did used to always tell me, um, you know, they, their relationship is really strong and they basically would talk about, um, you know, surgery and the hospital and all that stuff at dinner all the time. And they told me, don't become a doctor. Don't become a doctor. There's too much politics, you know, <laughs> do your own thing. And, but they both loved it. But then they said to me and my sister, you know, don't do it. Um, so I never considered that path. And I, I don't know, like, I was always interested in business. I was always interested in coming up with ways to sell things. And in, in high school, I was in the student government. I started in ninth grade 
and they used to always just do bake sales. Like that was the thing or Krispy Kreme sales and just to, to raise money to do different initiatives with the government. Um, and I was like, why don't we try some new things? And so I launched this like babysitting night at my school where we got all the, it was a school that was pre-K through 12th grade. And we had the ninth graders come in and be babysitters. And we like sent out notices to all of the parents for the younger kids in the school to say like, oh, you want to go out on a Friday night? We're having a babysitting night at school. So it was like super after hours um, until like 10 or 11. We had them watch movies. We ordered pizza. We made tons of money doing it. Um, and then I launched another, like we did Valentine's Day balloon grams and flower grams. And we did these like exam baskets where we sent notices out to the school where parents could buy these care packages before exams that would be delivered to their kids' classroom. And we just had all these cool ideas. And I um, was able to present a check to a, a charity at graduation for 10 grand. That was just based off. And we additionally, we, we took the whole class to Disney World our senior year with all the money that we had made over the four years. Um, and we gave a check to a charity in Africa for 10 grand, um, just based off those interesting ideas. And I loved that. And I remember sitting in my, in my living room with my dad in 10th grade, putting together these exam baskets and just like watching the money pour in. So I think at that point I was just addicted to coming up with new, new concepts. And then in college, I actually, I went to school in London. I initially went to the university of Virginia, the transfer to London, and I opened a bakery while I was there. And I also had a snack distribution company. So like I was, I never really even thought about it. I just did it. I was always just like, oh, this is a cool idea. I got to do it. And I'm just like, couldn't get these ideas out of my head until I did them. Um, so you're very much that was like, Sorry, keep going. No, 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 go ahead. What were you saying? I was saying you're very, it's very apparent. You're the the person that thinks, you know, everyone's thinking one way, but what if we did something different? I love and that you, stuff. And yeah. Do you think your parents helped you think like that? Or do you just remember always being that way? It's really interesting. To question because, things. Yeah. I, cause I don't remember being taught to question things. I mean, my mom is certainly like a very by the book rule follower, not a huge risk taker. My dad was much more of um like, you know, challenge convention in his field. And I think maybe I saw that and, and modeled after that. Um, never talked about business or, you know, different ideas. Never. I remember there was one moment though, and this might be my defining moment. Um, and I think I was <laughs> nine and my mom woke up in the morning and she was like, I have this idea. We're going to be so rich. And she had this idea for, it was back when, you know, you used to buy those like computer programs in the big boxes at Best Buy or whatever, Circuit City. Um, and it was the software and she had this idea for one that would count calories and she was like so excited about it. And she called our friend who was, um, a computer programmer. And I was like, I was so into it. I was like, yeah, we can do this. And, and then we found out that there actually was several different programs like that already. But I remember that very clearly of like, wow, like the possibilities are endless. We could create something and put it out there that people will use. So maybe I do owe it to her for that idea. I think that's really interesting. So you went to school for journalism and it sounds like you've always been an entrepreneur, but when did you really think I could do this professionally? I could make this my career. Yeah. I I didn't honestly until surf set. Cause I had like the bakery was kind of a hobby over there. Um, you know, the snack company was also kind of a hobby. I did it with a partner and I wasn't, I was still, you know, interested in journalism. And then I thought this is what I'm going to do. And what's, I'm actually writing a book and that hopefully I will publish soon about 
how young people aren't necessarily encouraged to think that they're going to become entrepreneurs or start businesses. Um, mm-hmm. We're encouraged to like kind of follow a track in school. Um, and that, while that track might be business, the end goal sometimes is to get hired at a, at a large company, you know, in a management role or something, not necessarily to start your own business. And I think it's maybe becoming, there's, there's a lot of cool programs around the country that are encouraging entrepreneurship. But when you're young, like in high school and when you first go to college, it's like, oh, what am I going to study? And so I just thought, what do I like out of all these options that they have? I didn't think I could make my own path. And so I was like, oh, journalism, I guess. But I knew, I mean, I didn't even, I wasn't even interested in school. I was just, I was doing it to get through. I was interested in the ideas and the businesses that I was launching on the side. And I still never thought that that was like a viable career. My mom is like super supportive of everything I do. You know, she was an early investor in, in our business. Um, when we were going to go on Shark Tank, we needed a little bit of cash just to get the prototype where we needed it to put it on TV. So she helped me there and she's always been supportive. So I'm lucky with that, but it was just, it was never like, oh, wow, Sarah, you know, you seem like you are really only interested in starting businesses. Maybe you could come up with something that you could sustain. Um, But that was, it's just not like what was around me when I was younger. Um, So, you know, you're talking about your mom and I guess, is there anything that really sticks out to you as surprising that you've learned so far? Yeah, I think so. For me, something that I've been struggling with recently is having an element of success. And this is something I never faced before. It was like the fear of failure. Um, and I think that's a key element to most entrepreneurs that I meet is like, you just don't fear it. You just don't think about it. You know, it's not, it's, it's like, it's not even an option. You just, and you, and a lot of us do fail, but you just move forward and it's not on your mind. And you're, you're just so driven by the positives of what you're doing. Um, and I never had a fear of failure until I had an element of success. And then it was like, oh, wow, now, you know, I can't mess this up. Or like if I launch another company, it has to be even better. So you, you find yourself like getting trapped by having success. Um, whereas like when you have nothing to lose, it's so much easier. And so I ha- I've had to like coach myself. And that's why I always see it's interesting how like, you know, people that come from really poor families sometimes end up being really successful. Uh, like I know Mark Cuban's family, you know, they were not wealthy growing up and he kind of just had this mentality, like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do whatever it takes and I have nothing to lose. Um, and then you find, you know, people from really wealthy families do well in business when they start them because they have a big support system. And at the same time, they also have nothing to lose because they know there'll be cash there. There'll be a life there. Um, where, and then you come to like middle class people that are really educated, you know, that have come from good families and that have a certain amount of wealth, but they have this fear of like, oh, I, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it all. Like I went to college and I, you know, I have like this education. I can't go out and risk this stuff. You know, what are my friends going to think? What are my parents and their friends going to think? So we've like created this whole system that causes people to really be risk averse. And I found myself falling into that. And I'm like, I've got to keep reminding myself of what my mentality used to be because that's what got me to a point of success. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I've I've never thought of it like that before, but I think I think you're right. There's a level of scrappiness that comes when you think, you know, this could be if we if we end up where if we fail, we're back where we started and and that's an okay place to be. Right. Exactly. And I remember when we first launched and 
um, Mike, one of my co-founders, was having a really hard time with it because, you know, he went to Dartmouth, he had an Ivy League education, he had an MBA, he could have, you know, worked his way up into finance and he hated his job, but he still had this overwhelming fear of, of like, what if I, what if I fail and what if it's a public failure and, you know, what if I lose everything? And it's not like he even had anything. And I remember saying to him, what's the worst thing that could happen? Let's talk through it. Like, let's talk through all of it. You know, people are going to make fun of you. Like, you know, you're going to have to start from scratch. Maybe you have to move back in with your parents. Like, we just talked through this whole worst case scenario to the point where he was comfortable saying, all right, you know, worst comes to worst. You know, I think at one point he said, worst comes to worst, like I'll move to Costa Rica and live on the beach. And once he had that concept of like, all right, it's I'm not going to die. Um, then he was ready to just push forward and do it. I think that's, I think that's really great. Um, and so at the end, we're going to switch gears and ask, uh, and with a little few fun questions that are just quick. Um, so, you know, you talked about early adopters and how important they are. What products or, you know, whether it's an app or a physical product, what are you a really big fan of? Like, what do you tell people they have to use? Um, well, I think like everyone, I'm a huge Uber fan. That's <laughs> definitely, definitely something that's made my life a lot easier. Um, and then I, I like a lot of like obscure, like productivity apps. There's one called Quip that I don't know that it's been adopted that much, but I'm, I'm certainly passionate about it. It's just a, like a very intuitive user-friendly way to share documents and to-do lists. And I use it in my personal life and business. Um, that's awesome. And then, yeah, I think, I think that's the main one. And then there's another one that we use for Surfset called Bloomfire that I always tell people that our need an internal training network, essentially, like an um, enterprise social network. It's really mm-hmm. great software and the company has been awesome to work with. So I always promote that to other small businesses. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and what is a book that you recommend, either a business book or just one that, you know, really resonates with you? So I've read a ton of business books and I, I really like all of them. Um, a great one is, uh, I think it's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yeah, um, that's a, a really good business book. And then personally, as like for the personal side of entrepreneurship, um, there's one that I just read called The Surrender Experiment. It's really kind of strange and like new age, um, but it's about like surrendering your need to control everything and kind of letting life guide you. Like the premise is this whole natural world is created like from the cells all the way through, you know, animals and plants. And we had no control over that um, personally. But we think that we know best when it comes to our own lives and we construct these lives and we like fight against nature and we fight against what's natural and what's meant to be, as they say. So like it's it's kind of a, a different read, but I would definitely recommend it to people that are interested in pursuing entrepreneurship. God, I probably need that. I think I'm a little too much of a control freak sometimes. Yes, it helps um, to get some control sometimes. I'm definitely a list maker, so that helps me feel better when I write things down. Uh, and then finally, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview? Um, well, somebody who I am pretty, who I've been mentored by to some extent is, uh, um, his name's Chuck Runyon and he's the founder of Anytime Fitness. Um, it's in our industry, but he's, he's so much more than, um, just the founder of a gym. Like he's created a culture that is just unparalleled. Um, with his franchisees. And I'd love to just like dig deeper into that. That's great. I'll have to check out his, his stuff. Um, well, yeah, thank you, awesome. Sarah, so much for being on my show. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been so fun talking to you and uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.
All right, and that's it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and stay up to date with us on Twitter at 52founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.